everybody, we don't have a scripture reading this morning because I'm going to read a lot of scriptures from various places in the New Testament. So we're just going to jump right in. Okay. Um, many of you know we've been doing a series called Unbrandable for the last several weeks. I think this is the seventh week of it. Um, Devin will preach the last week. Next week I'll be preaching at Lloyd's Church in Aurora, Illinois, which will be fun. We've talked about how um, brandability is to dramatically simplify a truth and to not force people to deal with the complexity of it. It's your job to simplify it, and you're to market it to their tastes and desires. And what this whole series has been about is, you know, some of the most important things about God and what God has done and who God is and how he expresses himself and how he saves us and how he communicates and all of that is not brandable. It's not supposed to be simplified so that we don't have to become mature in order to understand it, so we can remain in perpetual vanity and immaturity. And it's not supposed to be marketed to our tastes and desires because God wants to heal our tastes and desires so that he can give us the desires of our heart. And so we've talked about um, the manner of Christ in the world, God's meekness. We've talked about his sovereignty. We've talked about what love really looks like. We've talked about um, his relationship to power, and we've talked about— a bunch of different things, but this morning what we're going to talk about is, um, is his death in us. Um, martyrdom doesn't brand. That we are a people, we are a dying people who are supernaturally living. And that that is a complex reality that cannot be simplified, and it is not marketed to our tastes and desires, and therefore it cannot be branded. Okay. Every human being in the world has some vision of paradise in their mind. I would say heaven, but then you resist that. I have to argue for it. Paradise just means garden of delight or um, well-being encircled with a fence, right? It's secure and it's good. And everybody has this idea in their mind of what paradise is for them, what, what it would look like for them to have the life that they wanted. And then everybody has an idea of what stands in their way and what would get them past that obstacle. The thing that would get them past the obstacle is their view of salvation. Does that make sense? Whether you're religious or irreligious, you have a view of paradise, i.e. heaven, and you have a view of salvation. What would get you to that life, right? And, um, but when we talk about Christian faith, um, one of the things that we need to recognize is the safety, happiness, and prosperity that we all hope for as part of our paradise. Um, generally speaking, people know, at least in a vague way, that in Christianity somehow this happens through the suffering of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You've probably heard that, right? God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him would have eternal life, right? Believes in, not dies. And he gave his son, knowing that that somehow relates to the cross and Jesus dying on the cross, right? And so the, the question is, how would God brand that if he wanted us to really understand what it means that his life comes through the death of Jesus, through his suffering somehow, somehow through Jesus' suffering, we can experience our paradise, right? Or maybe not our paradise, but real paradise, right? So one of the ways that this could simplistically brand is if we— and you may have heard this before, that Jesus suffers so we don't have to, right? Jesus died in your place, meaning he's the one who died, not you. You're not in that place. In some ways, the whole sacrificial system is based on this idea, right, throughout the whole Old Testament, that if I sinned, I had to bring a sacrifice. That sacrifice was killed as a substitution in my place so that I'm not killed, right? You can think of it this way. Jesus suffered in your place, died your death, embraced your poverty, failed your failure. He did it so that you can have life and peace and blessing and success. That sounds pretty good, right? Is that, that'll market. We could sell that product. We could make that poster, right? Um, maybe not quite as sarcastically as this one, but something like that would work. And, and a lot of 
a lot of people have heard this message. A lot of people either just believe it generally, they believe it nominally, like they've heard something about the death of Jesus, that's spo- and I'm, God's supposed to make me happy, so that must be how it works. There are some churches where this really is, they've worked out this theology a lot. It's, sometimes we refer to it as the prosperity gospel. That like, if Jesus, Jesus died for you, took, he took all the bad, and if you really trust him, then all the good will be poured out for you in him and by his spirit, right? Including wealth, if you have faith enough to give enough, right? And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is, is that the Christian message? Like, is that the message of Christ? Right? And th- th- it's, it's really easy to think maybe it is. Right? There's a number of passages in Scripture that seem to say something pretty close to that. Like, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see how that works? There's this substitutionary action where Jesus— becomes sin for us, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God, right? You can see it in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, just a little bit later. This one looks like it's related to wealth, right? It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that is rich in heaven as God, right? He came in the incarnation, became man, and died on the cross. For your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And the context there is giving— relative to financial giving to other believers in, who are in poverty. And so a lot of churches have said, this isn't just Jesus dying for our sins so that we have his righteousness. This is also, like, this dynamic functions throughout all the things in our lives. That God takes the bad thing so that he can freely give us the good thing if we just believe in him, if we just trust him. Right? It says in, um, should be one more there. In um, 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see that dynamic? Now, the, the problem is, is that in any message, in any truth, when the part is made the whole, then it's really easy to unravel the whole truth. There is a way in which Jesus suffered so you don't have to is 100% absolutely completely true in Christian faith. That is, every bit of unproductive and unredemptive suffering, that is, the suffering of your damnation, that is, all the price or righteous penalty for your sins, that which we—that you and I deserve judicially from God, our rightful punishment based on the evil that we have actually done, right? We were meant to face the wrath of God, that is, God's anger against sin, is not there because he gets angry easily. It's there because he has a right moral emotional relationship with reality, and that's the proper emotional response for what we actually really do to each other, to ourselves, and to him. And if we were to suffer that wrath, right, the punishment that should go with that anger, there is, it is utterly unredemptive. It is only damning and destroying and final. And that penalty, which incurred not just our suffering, eternal suffering, but also our fundamental and final separation from God, Jesus substitutes for entirely. He suffered, so you don't have to suffer that. And that is—that is an incredible message, and that produces um, what we in Christian faith refer to as justification. That is, pardon from sin, being counted righteous, and therefore— able and capable to be in union with God, to have a relationship with him, to know him personally and eternally and deeply and mystically, right? Now, the reason why it's really important to to say that this is not the whole message of the gospel is because if all we say to people is, Jesus suffered so you don't have to, 
and it's just that simple. What happens is, is that that message doesn't work for anybody in real life. If you say that to irreligious people who don't want to be religious, they'll see that as a, as a simplistic and shallow view of spirituality where we don't care about anybody who's actually suffering. We just think they don't have enough faith. And it's like a way to dismiss ourselves so that all the wealthy people who are healthy and doing fine can feel like God is blessing them. And anybody who's hurting, that must be because they don't have enough faith or they're not interested in God or something like that. It's a very typical human view throughout the history of the world. Everybody wants to justify themselves, right? For seekers, they're going to have the same issue. They're look, if they're really looking for the truth, they're going to look at that truth and they're going to be like, that can't be right. That can't be the truth. Like, it can't be that simple for like everything that's in life. And because we, we conflate the beauty of justification that Jesus died so we don't have to, right? with all of the rest of what's happening in Christian salvation, when the seeker comes to hear about the true message of God in the complicated world in which human beings really live, they'll see that and they won't be drawn to it. They won't believe because we're not telling them the truth, not the whole of it, not really. We're branding something too simplistic to be real. This is also a problem for the young. Young people who grow up in our church, we teach them very simplistic truths in Sunday school. We're supposed to because that's where their cognitive ability is. But as they get older, those truths have to sufficiently complexify for the world as it really is. And in order for that, they have to understand more than just Jesus suffered so you don't have to. They have to understand what, what it means that then something else happens. Or what happens is as, as they move into real maturity and their world gets more complicated, the simplistic truths that we've taught them won't make the jump into their level of maturity. And they'll think that therefore Christian faith is just something stupid, immature people believe, or it's something, it's like some kind of stupid wish fulfillment, and I can't believe this in the real world I live in. And it's also true for believing Christians. If you think that, what's going to happen when you do suffer? What's going to happen when things go badly? What's going to happen when paradise doesn't show up for you? bad things to your faith, right? So um, we need to recognize that it is, it is not simply true as the whole truth that Jesus suffered so you don't have to. In, a incre- in all unredemptive suffering of damnation and hell, in all sin guilt that keeps us from being capable of being united with God, Jesus suffered so you don't have to. Jesus died so you don't have to. He was your 100% complete substitution. But when we look at salvation as a whole, all of the paradise that God wants to give us, everything that is part of the good message of all that he's going to do to give us all the good that he wants to give us, it would look something like this. Jesus suffered to make you his own so that we can be fully united with him. The thing Jesus' suffering achieves is the capacity for us to be united with him. It's why we're justified. Why would it be right for somebody to die for our sins? So someone, some innocent person suffers, the guilty person goes free. In what sense is that just, right? Justification works because we, through faith, become in union with Christ. So we are counted as one with him. So the guilty person does suffer and die, and the righteous person does go free because they are the same person. They are in union with each other, right? And what God wants to give us isn't just release from— isn't just release from damnation and separation. He is saving us always to something, not just from something. The small part of salvation is what you're saved from. The major part of salvation is what we're saved to. And too many Protestant evangelicals only hold in their heart— the thing Jesus saved us from. 
And we believe, but maybe an eighth of the gospel, and therefore carry but an eighth of its joy and walk in maybe an eighth of its power. I did make up that fraction. But it's like in that neighborhood. Jesus suffered in your place so that you could be united with him. Right? And everything else flows from that. But what that also means, if we read the Bible carefully, is that that union is complete. That by faith, being made able to be reconciled with God and united with him, we are united with Jesus in his everything. And all through the New Testament, what that means is united with him in his death and united with him in his life. Both. And so every minute of every day, we are dying and living. Every moment, we're dying more with Christ and living more with Christ in some strange, mystical way until all the death will be died and only life will remain. That is the mystery of walking in the way of the cross in the power of resurrection life. Right? And so we were united with him in his death and in his resurrection, in his loss and in his life, in his rejection and in his glorification. Right? Think about even just one of the verses I read before. Christ died for, for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to save you from hell. Do you see how it doesn't say that? It says to bring you to God. The purpose of that, him dying for us, was to create reconciliation that is union, to bring you to God. I'm sorry if you feel like I'm belaboring this, but it's, it's sort of critical, you know? It's why God suffered so you don't have to is totally unbrandable. Even though it's totally true, it's like an eighth of the truth, right? Think about it this way for a second. Imagine there's, these, there's this young woman named Hillary and there's this young man named Aaron. <clears throat> and Hillary has had like a really bad six years, okay? She's a little, she's kind of prone to hair brain schemes. She doesn't really trust the right people. She's a really nice girl and a nice person. She's mostly kind to people around her when she's had her coffee. But like, you know, she's struggling a little bit with adulting. And she meets this guy named Aaron. And Aaron is like, came to the city to like kind of make, uh, make his fortune. He's from a pretty strong family. Um, she doesn't know a whole lot more, but she likes him. And he kind of likes her. She's, she's nice. She's sweet. She's pretty. She's, um, and she's like, she's kind of like sorting it out in a creative, interesting way. And so they, they, they like meet each other, and then they go out on dates, and then they, they kind of like each other, and they date for like three months, you know? And, and Aaron really struggles with this, with this thing with the, in their relationship because, um, because of all these like kind of harebrained schemes Hillary's gotten herself into, she's, she has accrued over the last six to ten years like 200 grand in debt, right? And she, and she works for like $13 an hour, you know? And she, I mean, she like barely make the, the minimum payments on the stuff. And she's got creditors calling her all the time. And she's like trying, she'd love to move forward in her life, but she like has to work this dead end job so that she can pay the things. And like, she's just like, it's, you could tell it's stressing her out. And she gets phone calls while we're there at dinner from creditors. And it's like, and like, oh, like it's, it's like everything in her life is in some way structured around this, hang, this debt hanging over her head. And it's just, it's kind of like crushing her as a person. And, um, she and she doesn't know this, but like he's like from one of the old money wealthy families of his like semi-rural small city town. And he's doing fine himself. And he, he decides that like he's, he's going to pay this off. Who knows what's going to happen in this relationship, but like he's sick of watching her crushed by this. And so he figures out where her, where her creditors are and he goes to them and he like, he settles with all of them. And he's like a good business negotiator. He pays whatever he has to pay, gets rid of all the debt. Goes out to dinner with Hillary the next night and tells her. And she's like over the moon. 
you know, she like jumps out of her seat and she kisses him and like, she's like so happy. And he like, she's like, I know you want to order champagne. Go ahead. She orders champagne. She's like, she's having a great time. She's so thrilled. He's never seen her this happy, right? And then he, he, they eat a little bit. And then after a while he says, he says, so I need to, I need to tell you something else. He said, um, you know that I came to town to kind of like make my fortune and like see where I could go as a businessman, stuff like that. But, um, I've decided what I think God wants me to do is to go back to my hometown. And it's really been suffering just like economically, like businesses have moved out of there. Like there's no good jobs for people. Everybody's incredibly depressed. Um, it, it just the, the whole, that whole city is hopeless and caving in on itself. And um, I just closed on two properties. Um, I have two small manufacturing businesses I think I can bring to the town and really begin to build an economic base, support a couple of the churches there, really begin to build some hope. I think in a generation I can make a huge difference. Um, we just— I, all our good people just flee to the city, you know? And um, he said, so at the end of the month, I'm moving back, and um, I would love it if you would come with me, you know? And so it's kind of silent for a minute. She kind of looks pensive, and she smiles, and then she doesn't smile, and, and finally she says, um, Aaron, I think that is so amazing. I love what you're going to do. I love that. I love that you have a dream that you're going to chase, and I love that you're going to make a difference, and it's so awesome. And she's like, um, but like ever since just before we started dating, I've always kind of wanted to be in like fashion merchandising in New York City, and there's this school there that I, I like just really want to go to, and I just think it would be amazing to just like be part of that culture and be part of that city life, and I just, I, like I have, I have a dream. I feel like I need to chase it. I need to chase it too you know? And, um, and that was their last date. Isn't that a happy story? <laughs> like, they, they both got to chase their dream. Isn't that great? Two people, you know, star-crossed lovers, spent some time together, enjoyed each other's company. Both of them chased their dreams. They both lived happily ever after, right? Right? You, most human beings would not feel that way, right? Why not? right? And, and it's because in that story, Hillary got affected, but not affected. Like, something happened to her. She got freed from her debt. Like, the slavery of that thing just got lifted off of her. She got affected in one of the most profound ways. It was so beautiful, and she was free, right? And she used her freedom to continue to pursue her vacuous, shallow, self-destructive, slavery-incurring lifestyle, unchanged by the gravity of the moral person in front of her, the love that he was willing to offer, and the meaningful future she could have been his companion in. And you knew it was a loss, and you felt it, and that is what is lost when we do not understand the message of the gospel. It is not mainly about the debt. The debt is just prefixings of the story for union and future and companionship and purpose and meaning and living and dying and breathing and fighting and living. I came that you would have life and have it fully, Jesus said. And all that was meant to go together. They were meant to live happily ever after. Right? And as we work through the scriptures, you begin to see this theme over and over again, that like being with Christ, really belonging to him, being in Christ, as it says 89 times in the New Testament, looks like living and dying with Jesus. 
right? In Galatians 2.20, it says this in relationship to the law. I no longer live under the law, but I live in union with the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's how he thinks about his life. He's alive, but he's like, listen, I have been, I'm as crucified as Jesus is. I, I, was, I was with him on the cross, dead to the law as he killed it. Alive only in the Spirit now. I no longer live in that old life, living under the law, in that old way, a slave to sin. But instead, I am alive in Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Subtext, so I love him and give myself for him in the life of the Spirit, living for love. Right? You can see this in Luke 9, 23, where Jesus is talking to people who want to be his disciples. He says, listen, he doesn't say, listen, I'm going to suffer so you don't have to. That's not what he tells them. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. You see what he's saying? What, some of you know that I really dislike this, the phrase, I'm a Christ follower. And the reason why I dislike that phrase, and it's okay for you to say it, it's okay for other churches to say it. The reason I don't like it is because what I know normal, urban, worldly people mean by it is something less than a believer. I follow Jesus periodically when I agree with him, when it doesn't cost me very much. That's not what follow Jesus means. That's what follow Jesus means. If you're going to say the phrase, if you think you're a Christian, and you're going to say the correct phrase, I'm a Christ follower, that is the definition Christ gave to being a Christ follower, okay? It means that you take up an instrument of torture and death, and you follow him, leaving all of your choices, all of your little things, all of your little idols, all of your little comforts, even all the good things in your life utterly behind to follow him in his purpose, his life, to be in union with him, to throw away all things in his death, and to live in the spirit of life with him Amen. in everything. And if that's what you mean, say Christ follower every time you refer to yourself as a Christian if you want to. And if you don't mean that, don't you ever say you are a Christ follower. Oh, no, you're going to have some bad days, but you know what I mean, Right? Romans 6, he says this, this is now about our slavery to sin. He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Don't you, he's like, don't you realize when they dumped you under the water, don't you realize what that meant? It meant you were dying with Jesus. You are living in his death, right? Um, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we might live a new life. He's saying, when I came to Jesus and I got baptized, which all believers must do, and I was buried with him in the death of baptism, I counted myself death to the, in, in the context of Romans 6, the slavery of sin. I, I can't live in that anymore. That's no longer the life I live. I died that just as Jesus died for it. I died to it in and with him. And so I'll never live in that again because I'm, de I'm dead to it. I'm, I live dead to sin. And I live alive to the righteousness that God has raised me in his glory to live in. And so I carry around the death of Christ and the life of Christ. What it means to live in Christ is partially to live in the death of Christ while also living in the full life of Christ. Or you're not living in Christ. Right? Second Corinthians says it this way. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Meaning, in the ministry of life. Living for Jesus. Speaking for Jesus. Right? He says this. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. See, when he, when Paul, the Apostle Paul and his, all of his companions are misunderstood and mistreated and dishonored and 
life is difficult because they're Christians. He says, listen, we, that's, that's how Jesus died. That's why Jesus died. That's how Jesus got himself killed. Because he carried around in his body the truth of God, and he spoke it plainly. He had the heart of a martyr. And so he was crushed and not abandoned. He was perplexed, but never in despair. He was struck down, but he wasn't destroyed, right? And so we carry in our bodies always the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death in Je for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Right? He's saying, even in my life as a Christian, there are ways every day in which I'm being crushed to death and I'm able to stand up under it. I'm able to have happiness in it. I'm able to find joy in every part of my difficulties. When I take on other people's struggles and problems into my life out of love, I'm happier for the hospitality I get to show and the care I get to give somebody else who may never thank me and who may actually despise me later on because I didn't do what they codependently wanted me to do, even though I love them. And I can take all of that because I'm dead with Christ. And in so doing, I experience the life of Christ. Right? And we could go on, Philippians 3, becoming like Jesus in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead, the two are bound together. Many, many, many other passages. Right? Jesus didn't suffer so we don't have to. Jesus suffered to make us fully united with him. Okay, so I want to go through just three ways really quickly, um, in, in, by way of application of what it means for us to really exert faith in such a way to have the heart of a martyr. That is to be united with Jesus in his life and his death, and to daily be united with him in his purposes. To really live with and in Christ in both his death and resurrection every day. Right? Which is what I'm calling the heart of martyr, and that, that just doesn't brand, y'all. And these are some of the things that I don't—we—Christians, even in America, used to talk about more. And we don't talk about them as much anymore. Um, the first is, is that martyrdom means complete surrender what um, the Bible calls discipleship, but we sometimes misunderstand. Complete surrender. Um, to have any chance of living in the death and life of Jesus, you have to realize what it means is, is that in your heart and in your mind and in your will, you have to completely surrender your entire life and everything about yourself to the ruling and teaching of Jesus. Everything. Um, Americans don't live that way. We do not live under complete authority in almost anything that we are part of. We don't even—we don't treat our parents that way even when we're four. You understand? We have—we have our culture of authority is almost entirely broken down in America. And whoever has the loudest social media account wins. You know, so, so like we have no idea what authority means. And so we don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord, King, or for him to be Master, Teacher, and for us to be a disciple. It means total surrender. It means if he picks up a cross and goes off and says, I'm going to go get nailed to this thing. You should come with me. We just go, okay, and we pick up the cross and we walk after him. That's what it means. Full stop. And friends, it, you have to grapple with that. that. That's what faith means. That's what discipleship really means. It means total and complete personal surrender in every area of your life. And how you engage with the people in friendship, how you engage with sexuality, how you live out your career or vocation, what kind of education you pursue, what it means to engage in making a family or producing children, what it means to live in a city or a society, how we speak to other people about our faith, what it, like, what the poor mean to us, every, everything possible, the, how we wear our clothing, what we choose to do with our teeth, like everything will relate to the master that we are in complete surrender to. And friends, I cannot tell you how critical this is. 
And as you work through scripture, the metaphors for this are really profound. For example, in Philippians, it says this. Even as I, that's the Apostle Paul, who is, he, he, he fears he's going to be killed soon, right? And he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Now think about the picture of that. He's referring to the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, um, picture this, right? Your life in Jesus is kind of like you're a lamb that gets tied up, and they're slitting your throat so you bleed to death, and they're going to burn you to a crisp in devotion to God. And there's this thing called a votive or a drink offering, which is like a liquid or like wine that you give an offering to God, and they pour it over that to add to the fragrance of the, the burnt offering. He's like, M my dying is like this like flask of wine. You're tied on the altar, slit, throat slit dying, being burned up as an offering to God's glory. And I'm, I'm just some some wine being poured over that. And that's what we're offering to God in complete and total destruction of ourselves in utter devotion to Him for His purposes and goodness. That's the, that's the metaphor he's using. He's saying that's what it's like to be totally devoted to Jesus, to be fully His, to be a Christ follower. It means to be so His in utter, complete surrender that you accept anything at His hand and for His purpose— whether it is stardom or the gulag, and everything in between, including death and abuse. And we can't, we can't enter into anything like what it means to be his disciple, what it means to really believe in Jesus, what it means to live in his life and in his death every day, in union with him without total surrender. Because here's the thing, you guys, listen to me. You're never really going to do that. Do you understand? You're, you're probably never going to be 100% submitted to Jesus. Maybe you will. That would be fantastic, right? Maybe you won't. I doubt that, right? But listen, you're not going to be even 20% submitted to Jesus if you're not aiming for 100, okay? To get to 5% really submitted to Jesus, you, you got to aim for 100. And like, honestly, you hold anything back consciously that you know you're holding back, you're never going to get anywhere, right? That's one of the reasons why in the Gospels and in the New Testament, when it refers to surrendering to God, often it's in the context of forsaking things that are very good and very important. For example, in, uh, in Kings 19, there's this place where Elisha, who would be the greatest prophet in the history of Israel besides Moses, um, is selected by Elijah because God tells him to select him. And he says, he, he like, he takes him in as like his understudy prophet, right? And Elisha says to him, he says, can I go back and say goodbye to my family. Does that sound like an okay request? Right? Like, most people would be like, that sounds like a meaning, right? And you know what Elijah says? He says, what have I done to you? Nothing. Right? It's very Jewish. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, there's nothing between us. Basically, he says, fine, go back and say goodbye to your parents. You're no longer part of my service. You're, I, I haven't taken you on as an understudy. It's over. Meaning like, I'm not going to stand in your way to go back to your worldly life. Go, go ahead and do it. It's fine. You just can't be the prophet. It's fine. We're done. And so you know what Elijah does? Elisha does? He goes back to the field, doesn't apparently talk to his parents, where Elisha, Elijah had found him, and he was plowing with these oxen in this big expensive plow, which were not cheap to build in those days. And he cuts up the plow and makes a fire, and he kills his oxen, which is how he makes his living plowing. And he, he cooks the oxen over the fire, and he distributes the food to the poor. His whole livelihood has been burned up, and he walks away to be a prophet. That is the reason why that's in the Bible for you to read, and for me to read. In Matthew 10, it's the same message. Like, 
He said, I didn't come, I didn't come on earth to bring peace. I came in such a way as it's going to bring a sword. Even, even in your own family, if your family is in an inordinate bond, or if they try to draw you away from Jesus, that might create a lot of conflict. And listen, so be it. Your devotion has to be such that if it creates problems within your family, it, it just does. You just do the best you can with it because you, you can't be more devoted to them than me. Even in Matthew 18 and others, you've read the place where it says, look, if your foot causes you sin, cut it off. Better to go into eternity crippled than to have all your body parts and go to hell. Right? He literally is saying, you have to be more committed to Jesus in complete and total surrender, forsaking even yourself, so that if it feels like cutting off a part of your body, to be totally devoted to Jesus, that's what it takes. It's what it takes. Which, that's a very hard teaching. Right? But it's a very relevant teaching to a lot of us. Because there's a lot of us who feel like we have feelings inside, or there's something about how we're personally oriented, or something that just naturally we feel like we have to have, or something we feel like we have to do. It feels like a part of our body. It feels like our arm. And for, for Jesus to be like, look, you can't go that way. It feels like cutting off a body part. And Jesus knew that. In eternity past, he said it 2,000 years ago, knowing that we would feel that way about things in our lives. And saying, listen, it's better to be without an eye or an arm or a leg, but to belong to me and to walk with me and to be united with me in life and in death than to be whole the way you see whole. If whole means that that body part and sin go together. It's terrifying. Right. I'm going to wrap up kind of quickly here. Um, it's fun things to say about that. Okay, the, the second thing is faithful, it means faithful witness. It means openly professing like Jesus did, right? In 2 Corinthians, it says that the purpose of one dying for all is so that we would no longer look at anybody in a worldly way, like they're just a, a means to our ends. And we would see that because Jesus died for us, right, to bring us to God, if we're united with him in his death and his rising, we're, we're doing the same thing, right? He died and rose in a ministry of reconciling. Do you see how there it doesn't talk about freedom from sin to get out of hell? It means that that's in there, unspoken. But he's like, the reason that's done is to reconcile. What does reconcile mean? It means to bring two people together, right? The purpose of everything Jesus did is to bring God and people together, to reconcile them. Right? And he's like, Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has the ministry of reconciliation, the service of others to reconcile them to God. And so now, we can't help but have that. Like, it, we're in him, and we have that same ministry. And I can't look at you anymore as a human being as something other than, first, a being bearing God's image who needs to be reconciled to God. That my death and my life is bound up in being the disciple of the one who has a ministry or a service of others of reconciliation to bring together people in God. And that cannot ever be reduced in me. Right? Jesus says it negatively in the Gospels when he says, um, he said, you have to follow me. These are, these are the verses that come right after that. If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and his holy angels. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you are dead with me and alive with me, then you're, you're inextricably connected to my purposes, my desires, what I'm doing, what I care about. And the first most central thing I care about is to reconcile image bearers with God. Right? And when I, when I think of like what I hope 
to be as a person, what I hope High Point to be as a church is that we are people who have the heart of a martyr, like, like Jesus. Have the, we have the heart of Jesus. We live and die like Jesus. And that means total surrender. It also means public witness. We're not ashamed to tell people we're Je- we're, we love Jesus. Um, I remember, uh, some of you have heard the story, but I talked to my brother when he was an undergrad, and he, I, he was in the geology department at his university, and I said, how many, how many people have you— because you say something about sharing the gospel, and I, maybe I shared it less than him. And, and I said, how many people have you actually shared the gospel? My brother is an introvert nerd. Like, he, he's not a show pony like me, okay? And he said, well, everyone. And I said, everybody in the whole geology department? He's like, yeah. And I was like, how did, how did you do that? He's like, Nick, I'm Jesus' disciple. I mean, how long can somebody be with me before it comes out? Right? You see, there, it's, it's not about like, hey, I've got this, this four spiritual law thing, or look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw this bridge illustration for you. It's the fact that like, if you are utterly unashamed, and your life is dying and living with Christ, it just comes out of you unashamedly, and the passive, quiet intimidation for you to shut up just doesn't really work, you know? And so it still comes out. And you're not afraid of being scorned because that would be to, be to die like Jesus, to be with Jesus, to be even more united with him. If you listen to the Apostle Paul talk, the more shame, scorn, danger, harm, threats he's under, the more he feels like he's really actually united with Christ in his death. He's like, this is great! When he brags about being better than other apostles who are like really ungodly apostles who are full of pride, he's like, listen, this is how you know I'm an apostle. He goes through all the whippings he's had and the beatings and like, floating at sea, and all the bad things that have happened to him. Don't you see? I'm dead like Jesus. His life is alive in me. That's why there's power. And when that happens, you see, we, we don't have any trouble being faithful witnesses. We're not ashamed of his word before people, and they try to make us ashamed all the time, but we're just not, because we're dead with Christ. There's only one person we're trying to please. We've surrendered all that, like our reputation and the doors these people are going to open for us. It's martyrdom. Listen to me. It's martyrdom. If you don't wake up in the morning and get ready to die, you're not going to walk with Jesus today. It's not, like, it's not going to happen, especially increasingly now culturally. You ha- it has to be settled in your heart, right? Which gets to the last thing here, that martyr means embracing expected suffering, right? Jesus said that the, the, the students aren't going to be better than the teacher. If they hate him, they, that is, those who are, who are invested in worldliness, that is, that is seeing the world not from God's point of view, not from the point of view as the rescue mission of reconciliation, not from the point of view of God and all his purposes and what real righteousness looks like in relationship to his kingdom, but like how they want to see it without any of that. And he's like, he, he said, listen, people who are committed to that aren't going to like you because you're saying reality is the opposite of what they say. And that's very threatening to them, and it's going to hurt their feelings, and they're going to react out of fear or pride or anger or whatever, and they're going to attack you. And he's like, listen, that's just going to happen. They did that to me. Jesus is like, listen, I did it perfectly well. I was healing the sick and the blind, and I was doing all kinds of nice things. I said things in stories. I told people parables. I said things like, I, you know, I was like really straight with like the religious leaders, but most people I spoke really nicely to, and they hated me. <laughs> He's like, quit thinking that if like you said it better, like if somebody like gets upset at you because you're honestly Christian, that you, you must have done something wrong. They want, they want you to believe. They're attacking you personally. They want you to think it's your fault. It may—maybe it's your fault, right? Maybe you're being a jerk, but maybe you're just being his. And Jesus is saying, if you are—if that's all you're doing, that still isn't going to win you friends and influence people in a lot of ways. 
right? He said it in First Timothy, look, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to be persecuted. Jesus, following Jesus is less eternal suffering. It's more present suffering. You're inviting persecution, but also you're going to love people. What happens when you love people? Like when you do real practical actions towards other people's needs, what's going to happen? Your life is going to become more complicated, less control over your privacy, less control over your time. You're going to spend your money, your life. People are going to not be thankful for it. All kinds of stuff. Now, a lot of wonderful things are going to happen, but a lot of really difficult things are going to happen too. Right? You'll love somebody one day and they'll spit right back in your face. And you'll be like, thank you. Right? That, so, so, so love invites suffering. Speaking the truth invites suffering. Doing good invites suffering. So yeah, like the clean living decreases like the suffering you get from like, you know, cirrhosis of the liver, okay? If Jesus gets you off alcohol. Like there's some ways in which like Jesus leads you to righteousness and there's a bunch of suffering you don't bring on yourself. That's fantastic. There's also eternal suffering that you're freed from because Jesus died on your behalf. That's fantastic. But there's also a big addition of suffering because you're going to die with Jesus. Yay! And so it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't just demand these things because he's like, listen, I gave you a lot and you need to give me a lot. He could do that. Like, he could say, I gave everything for you. Now you give everything that I've given you back to me. It is, it's a right turnabout of relationship. He could do that. But that's not really what's happening. Right? On one level, that's what's happening because he's trying to make you a loving person. That's what loving people do. Is they're, they're not just affected by goods that happen to them. They're affected. It changes them. But the reason he wants you to die with him and so to live with him is because it's in that process that we actually become like him. And because God is the most perfect being that there is, becoming like Jesus as ourselves is the most perfect, beautiful, worthwhile, destiny-filled creature we could ever be. Which not only makes the greatest capacity in us for good or righteousness with Jesus— but also the greatest capacity for happiness. Because we're connected to the true meaning of all things, and when God restores those things, it will pour a thousand beams of happiness directly into us forever. You see, we have to surrender to Jesus because it's the only way to free us from sin and law and hate and death and all of the influences that will tear us to a thousand pieces. It's only when you pick up a cross and follow Jesus and die with him every day in full surrender that he can make you free. And it's only when you do that that you really listen to him as a teacher and actually learn wisdom. Right? It's only when you're willing to speak the truth and not be ashamed to be a faithful witness that you actually accept the scorn that comes on Jesus, that you, bec- you have to commit your heart 100% completely to being a person of the truth because you don't get anything else. <laughs> Everything else can be taken from you except for Jesus and the truth. And you see, the human heart is so self-deceptive, we're such truth suppressors, that the only way that we could ever live in the light is if God sets up a situation in which we have to live 100% unashamedly for the truth. With all the lies, all the deception around us, with all the things people want to tell us, even so that we will back down and do something that might be good for us. When we, when we cast all that aside, we burn all the ashes, we say, no, I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to live for the truth. What Come what may, right? That's the only way we can become true enough to see the good, to believe in God as he is, to see God in his beauty so that we can enjoy him in worship and in relationship and in life. Right? And the reason why we have to embrace suffering 
is because it's the only way that we can become as practical as Jesus is if we become as romantic as him. Do you understand? People think of sentiment as an impractical thing. Like when John was up here before and he's like, so I was gone two weeks because I became a father, right? And then we all clapped, right? And then he made a deprecating joke like it was no deal. It just means I have more poop on me, right? Right, because that's our culture, right? Our culture thinks it's funny to take away the meaning of things, right? And we all laughed. Ha ha ha, that's funny, John. Way to destroy our humanity, right? Just kidding, John. Um, but why do we all clap, right? We all clap because we're like, oh, you had an offspring. That's important. Why is it important? The average father, Minhaden Minnow, in the ocean will have 95% of his offspring eaten within about 20 minutes of their birth. Like, why does it matter that he had an offspring, right? It's because we believe immaterially, metaphysically, that he created with his wife a being made in the image of God that will last forever, and that it fundamentally matters, and that that person will shape the world somehow, and repercussions morally and personally and lovingly will move out from that child's life indefinitely and perpetually, and on and on and on. We believe that. We have a romance about it. We we love it, and because of that, we become ultimately practical. That's why he has poop on him. It's that romance, that love that causes you to change the diaper— who will be a pastor in a church in a town with, with less than a thousand people in it? Because that's a death for most people. I would love it. <laughs> but for most people, they don't want to do that. Churches all over America that are in towns of less than about 200, 300,000 people, no young pastors want to go there. They can only get like older people, which is great, but it's hard to build churches and to keep young people in your town. But who wants to die that death? who wants to give of their evenings to show hospitality to new people in the church who aren't anywhere with Jesus so that they can love them and share with them and talk with them and become friends with them? Who wants to open up their friendship group to people who are not doing something for them? Who, who wants to, instead of going fishing with their buddies who are, hey, buddy, what's up? Instead of um, going fishing with their fishermen buddies who are really good fishermen, taking out somebody who doesn't even know how to fish, but who gets ten times more joy in catching a fish and knows that you care about them when you serve them that way. Who, like, Listen, friends, there's a thousand little deaths, and we don't die any of them if we don't die the big one every morning. Without the romance, nobody does anything practical. And we just come to church, and we pat ourselves on the back, and we assume we're fantastic, and nobody dies with Jesus. And when there's no death with Jesus, the power of the Spirit of life doesn't flow. It is when we embrace the path of Jesus— that the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit flows, heals, lifts up, teaches, changes, empowers, releases, frees, helps, grows, consolidates, like does everything, right? Whenever there's anything to bless, he'll bless it. The heart of martyr will never be branded. It can't be branded. Can only be believed. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we sing and live and act, we pray that you would, you would teach us how to have the heart of a martyr, that we could experience the life of Christ and the death of Christ, that in the way of the cross, we'd experience the unmistakable power of your resurrecting life, that the Holy Spirit uses the opportunity of death to raise the dead. And so we pray that you'd help us to embrace all the expected sufferings with the kind of romance to embrace their meaning and their, as an opportunity. Help us to see in Christ everything as an opportunity and to be filled with joy and anticipation and happiness in it. And we pray that in our acceptance of that Holy Spirit that you would move in power among us. And every time we submit ourselves 
to little deaths, we would see your life being, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians revealed through us. We want to see that revelation of your spirit. And so we choose the little deaths to experience that life and to see it in ourselves and in others. I pray in Jesus' name.